Thank you, Pastor Emily. Please grab a seat, folks. While I get myself organised. Thanks, team. Team does such an awesome job. Not not just the musos, but we have a whole volunteer team in the church, you know. And every Sunday you come along and from seven onwards, many weeks, we've got a whole team of people here doing all sorts of things just to to serve the church. And, and it's just such an amazing thing. So thank you to all the volunteers, to everybody who volunteers at various times. Um, things just wouldn't happen at all without each and every one of you. So praise the Lord. We're in the middle of a series at the moment, Jesus More Than You Know. And we, we've, uh, we, we've spent several weeks throughout the year on this series uh, there, there's four little, I guess, mini-series maybe. Sounds like something on TV, doesn't it? Um, but it's something that we've been doing. Uh, we, we, we did four messages out of the Gospel of Matthew, four out of the Gospel of Mark. At the moment, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. You know, it's, it's interesting that there are four Gospels, and really there's four retellings of essentially the same story. But there's so much uh, in each Gospel that's unique and it's different because all four of the Gospel writers had, had clear purposes in writing. They had clear purposes in, in the, the aspects of Jesus that they wanted to focus on, in the aspects of who he was, of what he did, of what he taught. And, and there were very good reasons for each of those uh, gospel writers to, to put what they included in, in their specific gospel, their story about Jesus and the good news. And Luke, uh, over the last two weeks, we've been looking at Luke. And, and so Linda was speaking a couple of weeks ago and, and, and was talking about how, how Luke gave his purpose for writing. In, we find in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, where he says, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke wanted to write an orderly account so that Theophilus, who, who we don't really know much about except that he was a noble man and, and uh, there's some some stuff in some of the uh, historians that, that briefly mention him, but we don't know a lot about Theophilus. But uh, it's thought that he commissioned Luke to write this story so that uh, Luke would come back to him and report, not just through his gospel, he wrote uh, the gospel of Luke and Acts, as Lyndon talked about a couple of weeks ago. And, and so this was like one narrative of, of the story of Jesus and the early church. And so this was, this was uh, Luke's purpose. And we learned in that first week about the historicity, so the historical context of Luke's writings, of, of Jesus within that context of history. Also, the cultural relevance and the fact that everything Jesus did was led by the Spirit. So his, his ministry, his teachings, everything that he did was, was Spirit-led, it was culturally relevant, and, and it was historically founded. And then last week, uh, Janet shared an amazing message just about the humanity of Jesus. You know, Jesus was fully man. And, and that humanity came out in so many ways through his teachings, through the things that he did, through the encounters that he had and through the lives that, was, that were transformed. We see Jesus as a man of compassion. You know, Jesus is a man of great humanity. But at the same time, he was fully God. And today what we're going to focus on is, is that aspect of Jesus as the king. He is the king, uh, the returning king in, in a large part of Luke. And, and that's, we're, we're really going to focus on that today. But we, we can't really understand that without delving into what many scholars believe is the main theme of the Gospel of Luke. And that theme is the kingdom of God. So today we're going to talk about the king and his kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is found all the way through Luke. And one thing just to mention, uh, for, you, you may have heard the term 
at some point over the years, synoptic gospels. So there are three gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, that are referred to as synoptic gospels. So the term synoptic comes from a Greek word and it actually means seeing everything together. So sin as in synonym and then optic, so optical. So if, if we see something similarly, if we see something together in context, in harmony, not necessarily exactly the same, we're not talking verbatim, but we're talking in harmony. So the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, large sections of those Gospels are consistent, not just consistent uh, with, with, with themes, but with the narrative. They're telling essentially the same story or parts of the same story. It's mostly, most commonly thought that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke were written later and Matthew and Luke both took Mark as one of their sources. Some scholars suggest that there was a, another a work that's been lost to history that they refer to just by the letter Q. And, and they believe that Q, this document, all three of the, the Gospels drew from. Now, whether or not that was the case, it's pretty clear that the three Gospels draw on uh, similar stories, similar themes, and often retell the exact same story. Now, Luke itself is divided into three sections. I'm just giving you a little bit of a context of Luke so that we understand the, the structure of the Gospel, so that we can then talk about some of the themes that Luke focuses on and emphasizes on through his teaching so luke it can be described as having three sections the first section is from the beginning through to chapter 9 verse 50 uh, and then the second section goes from 9 verse 51 through to chapter 18 verse 14 and then the third section starts at chapter 18 verse 15 through to the end now section one and section three follow along very closely with matthew and mark so you can read you can, you can actually uh, track those three gospels uh, and side by side and see very, very strong and consistent um, uh, themes right across and, and even narratives right across. But Luke does something interesting in section two. So we're talking like midpoint of chapter nine through the midpoint of chapter 18. He has an entire section in his gospel that is largely unique. So we don't find it in Matthew. We don't find it in Mark. Luke has this entire section. And, and in that section two of Luke, we find most of the teachings of Jesus in, in a very a broad general sense. Section one of Luke, we, we hear the declarations over Jesus, we see his birth, his, his childhood and the beginning of his ministry and a lot of his actions and some of his miracles are found in that first section up to chapter nine. Chapter nine to 18 then is largely the te teachings of Jesus and then from chapter 18 onwards is where Jesus comes back into Jerusalem as the king. So the king is coming into his kingdom and we see what that looks like through the, the crucifixion, the resurrection and the kingdom of God being established on this earth. That's in a very broad sense the structure of Luke. And if we look at all three of those sections throughout Luke, one of the main themes that is repeated time after time after time is the kingdom of God. And many scholars suggest that the kingdom of God is, is the, the, the main theme right throughout the gospel. I do just want to digress for a moment just to encourage you as well. We all love reading Scripture, and, and it's a good thing to read Scripture. But there, there are also some amazing resources around that we can read alongside Scripture where we can access untold thousands of hours of scholarly research of people who have put their whole lives into Scripture to help us to clarify. Remember Janet's message last week, she talked about, uh, she had the, the, uh, the analogy of the optical dispenser. You know, you go to, to a, an optical store and you get the right glasses and suddenly you can see clearly. And there's so many great resources that, that you can uh, read alongside Scripture to help you see Scripture clearly. Um, because many people over the years have read Scripture and, and it's transformed them, but many others have read Scripture and ended up confused. 
And, you know, sometimes we just need someone to help us to, to just get some clarity, to clarify exactly what's going on as we read these words that are, that are in the Bible. And one, one book that I really can't recommend highly enough, it's one of my favourite theological books. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by a guy named Kenneth E. Bailey. Um, some of the thoughts today come from that book, but it's just Kenneth Bailey really uh, captures Jesus in his cultural context. And we, we get to understand exactly what was going on in many of these stories that we miss in our 21st century Western cultural context. We read stories as Aussies in the 21st century, or Americans, or wherever we're from originally, whatever our cultural background, and, and we read that into the story. And without recognising what was actually happening, we can sometimes miss so much. So I just really encourage you guys, if you're reading, if you, anyone wants to borrow this, just tell me. I'm happy to lend it out. But um, there are some amazing resources that will help you to unlock Scripture in ways that, that maybe you've never imagined before. Anyway, I digress. Going through Luke, we're just going to quickly walk through the three sections of Luke. We're going to look at a few passages within Luke. We're going to put some up on the screen. We're going to quickly go through some others that we won't put up on the screen. But I just want to help us to see how front and centre the issue of the kingdom of God is throughout this gospel. So we're ready to go on a quick journey. So let's start in section one. So chapter one of Luke, verse 30 to 33. This, the context of this narrative is before Jesus is conceived, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary. This is the first visitation of the angel of, of the Lord to anybody in more than 400 years. So with Malachi, the last of the prophets, God became silent. And then 400 years later, an angel appears to Mary and says this. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. So get that? Most High is God. He will be called the son of God. Just keep that in the back of your mind. He will be great. And we call the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So he'll also be the Son of David. So remember those two terms Son of God, Son of David. They'll become important later. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So the very first declaration about Jesus before he was conceived was that he would be a king. His kingdom will never end. He'll reign over the kingdom of Jacob. So that's the kingdom of Israel. He's the son of God and he's the son of David. First words spoken through an angel from God in 400 years. Now, the son of David statement was central to the concept of Messiah and king. The, the Israelites for a thousand years since the time of David and after that there was a whole journey through the kingdom of, of the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, where... Uh, the, the, the people were waiting for the son of David, the proverbial son of David, the, the messianic figure, the king who would rise up and restore Israel to its rightful place. So this son of David was interwoven into every picture of Messiah, every picture of king that the Jews would have had. We then have in Luke chapter 3, God speaking publicly, again for the first time in hundreds of years. So Luke 3, 22, Jesus has grown up. Luke goes pretty quickly from you know, birth to 30-odd years of age. So Jesus then, by chapter 3, he goes through the waters of baptism. And that's a whole message in itself. He didn't need to do that, but he did that for all sorts of reasons. And so he went through baptism, and the voice came from the heavens, from the clouds, and it said this. It said, you are my son, whom I love. 
with you I am well pleased. So the very first audible voice of God, the, the first words he speaks directly, since the time of Malachi, some 400 years earlier, were, this is my son, you are my son. So we straight away see from Luke that Jesus is absolutely and completely uh, positioned as son of God and of son of David. And the very first public utterance of Jesus then, according to Luke, straight after that, he goes into the synagogue and he opens the scroll. It's his turn to read and he reads from Isaiah 60. He says this, and this is found in Luke 4, starting at verse 18. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Pretty cool message, eh? Imagine somebody reading that. Everybody knew it at the time from Isaiah 60, but he stopped at that point. Isaiah 60 continues saying, and the year of the vengeance of our Lord, which Jesus didn't read out. He stopped partway through the reading that he was meant to read that day. And it says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him because he'd done something unexpected. Hang on, you're not meant to stop there. This, and so he stopped and they're looking at him. And he began by saying today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So not only does he read Isaiah 60, that's pretty normal. You know, we've all read scripture and that's fantastic. But he actually stops and he makes a declaration. He makes a proclamation that this scripture is fulfilled in me, essentially. In your hearing today, this scripture is now fulfilled. He is positioning himself as the one that Isaiah prophesied, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God, the, son who, the one who would come to restore all things in the kingdom of God. So it would have been very clear to the, to the hearers who were there at the time what he was saying. So proclamation is in the realm of kings, you know, to make that proclamation, to, to proclaim freedom to proclaim release, to set the captives free, to release the oppressed. That is in the realm of kings. That is for somebody in authority. Somebody in, in a royal role can do that. Now, we don't really get the whole king thing in our society because for us, the royal family are a little bit of a, you know, uh, I guess they're fodder for, for, for magazines and stuff, but they, they don't really have uh, the sort of authority that in the first century Israel and, and in many parts of the world uh, that royalty still has. And so we don't really get that whole thing. But what Jesus is proclaiming here, he, he is not only declaring himself to be a king, but he's taking that place of king. He's saying this scripture, even the very words of God are fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, they're fulfilled in me. So it's, it's a pretty bold statement. If he wasn't who he said he was, it's very bold. That's sort of the time that you sort of step back and wait for lightning to strike somebody. Like that's, that, that was the extent of what he was declaring about himself. And then immediately afterwards, we read this in, in verse 42 of chapter 4. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other, other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So what he was proclaiming was, in his own words, the good news of the kingdom of God. And all the way through, what he taught, what he, what, what he spoke about, what he told people was there in their midst was the kingdom of God. This was a, a central theme. You know, in chapter 8, uh, he was talking to his apostles after he told one of the parables and they were asking what it really meant. And in 8 verse 10, he says, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. 
So the knowledge, the understanding of what he taught was actually deemed to be from the kingdom of God. Chapter 9, he sent the 12 out into all the towns. And he said to them, uh, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So their proclamation was the kingdom of God. And then the actions that followed showed that this really was the kingdom of God. That, that, was, the, that, that was the process. And all through section one, we see through the actions of Jesus, through the encounters that Jesus have, we, we, Jesus has, sorry, we see the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. This is a central theme. And then we move to section two. Section two of Luke, which is the, predominantly the teaching section, where most of Jesus' parables are and, and many of his teachings. And all through this section, the kingdom of God is front and centre. Um, now, bear in mind, as I said earlier, the fact that Luke includes this section 2, chapter 9, verse 50 through to 18, verse 14, um, and, and he, he didn't get it from the other Gospels, so he's not just telling a story, he's actually outlining something that to him was of critical importance. This is one of the reasons that he wrote this Gospel. And he's including many of these narratives that other Gospels didn't include because to Luke, it was a key feature that he wanted people to understand the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom. And so very quickly, we won't bring these verses up, but in every chapter of that section 2, the kingdom of God is mentioned in 9 verse 60, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 10 verse 9, heal the sick and, and uh, sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Uh, chapter 11 in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. At the end of that prayer, he says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. 12, verse 32, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Chapter 13, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Chapter 14, blessed is the one who will eat in the feast at the kingdom of God. See, all the way through, this is a, a repeated, continual theme. Chapter 16, since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed. And then we get to chapter 17. This is getting to the end of section 2. And we'll bring this next one up. He's, he's having a whole conversation with Pharisees and others about the kingdom of God. And they asked him when it would come. So we start from verse 20. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And a large part of chapter 17 really talks specifically about the kingdom of God but interestingly what Jesus says about the kingdom of God in that narrative would have been horrifying to the hearers because it's not about triumph and riding into Israel and bringing the Jews back and all that sort of stuff what he's talking about is actually a, a pretty horrendous future for Jerusalem and he's talking about bad stuff and stuff that we don't want to focus on he's talking about suffering and pain suffering for himself and suffering for Jerusalem and so this whole thing of the kingdom of God, the people were looking for a king. They were looking for a Messiah. Maybe many of them by that stage were thinking, could he be the one? And he made very clear that he was. But then he started a series of teachings and there was a series of stories that shook everything to its core. Because what the people had no concept of was what the kingdom of God actually was and who this king actually was. And so Jesus starts this process of shaking. And we're going to go spend a little bit of time going through that just so that we can understand not only what he said, because to an extent we, we can get it if we read it, but I actually want us to understand what it would have been like to those at the time too. So at this point, he, he's, he finishes uh, section two, the first part of chapter 18, 
with this big narrative about the kingdom of God in such a way that would have shaken everybody. And then he goes on in into section 3 of Luke where he rejoins uh, the, the versions of uh, Matthew and Mark and, and comes back to the narrative that they both contained in their Gospels. He starts with three stories. So the first one, and many of these stories are probably familiar to us, so we won't read the whole thing, but there's a key thought in each of these three stories. The first one is the Pharisee and the tax collector. So he tells this picture of a Pharisee and a tax collector who come into the temple and the Pharisee's up the front, you know, praising God for how good he is and that he's not like that tax collector over there. Uh, and, and, you know, really he comes to God full of himself. And then there's a tax collector. Now bear in mind, and you've probably heard this before, but tax collectors in the society were hated. I cannot tell you how much they were hated. And probably with good cause too. Because tax collectors made their wealth off the backs of the people. They ripped people off. They, essentially, like if anybody's ever felt bad about the amount of income tax we pay in this country, <laughs> the, the, uh, the tax collection system through Rome, even before the tax collectors added their own bit to it, was almost at 100%. Once the tax collectors started taking their bit, people at many times were paying more than 100% of what they brought in just to satisfy the tax. People went into debt, into servitude for generations just to cover the tax debt. And the tax collectors, who were Jews most, for the most part, were seen as collaborators with Rome. And, and they, they built their wealth. They generally would have you know, pretty ostentatious wealth and some of, the, some of the nicer homes and the nicer trappings of wealth at the expense of everybody else. So there was good reason that people hated them. So in this story, already the people would be a little bit... Uh, concerned and confused maybe <laughs> because Jesus shows the Pharisee the one who uh, he's he's God's friend isn't he? he's the one that knows God and tells us about God and tells us how we've got to behave to get to God and in Jesus narrative the Pharisee is not the good guy and the tax collector who just comes to God we'll read read the uh, verse 14 um, the the tax collector comes to God and basically just comes in humility and says Lord have mercy I'm a sinner have mercy in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, being a tax collector, rather than the other, being the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So he's messing with their heads a bit here. You know, that the one who they thought would be the good guy in the story is not. Uh, the one who they thought, who, who had told them, was justified before God. And you know, we know the ways of God, and you follow us, you do what we say, and, and, and we'll, we'll make sure you get to God. But God was actually saying this other guy, the tax collector, the one you hate, the one that is, is the, probably the most vile person you could think of in this context, is the one that went home justified before God. Keep that story in the back of your mind for a few minutes' time because it'll become very important. The next story, following straight on in the narrative, is that uh, the little, people bring little children to Jesus. You know, Jesus is going on, he's teaching the people around, all the important stuff's going on, you know, like a church, it's all the important stuff's going on. His kids come along, oh, no, that's the, the kids are making noise, we've we got to you know, get them away, will you? Like, get them away, they're, they're annoying. You know, like, we've got important things to do here. Like, how, how, could you, how could you think that Jesus would be interested in your kids? That, that was really what was going on, that, that's the mindset, that's what was happening. And Jesus said this in verse 16 and 17, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he goes further. He says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child 
will never enter it. Not only were these little kids that the adults thought were unimportant, not only were they central to Jesus, he said, unless you become like one of these little kids, you won't even get there. You won't even be part of my kingdom because the only way that you can come into my kingdom is to become like a little child. And then the third story, again, he contrasts. He talks about the rich, how hard it is for the rich to get to heaven. You know, for wealthy, for those who have all the trappings of wealth and everything in this world, it's so hard for them to get into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 24 and 25, he says, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So we start with these three stories where Jesus is really unpacking quite explicitly what is this kingdom that we're talking about. And the reason that he's doing this at this point becomes very clear shortly. But, but he's, he's showing that, okay, if you even want to be part of this kingdom, you've got to be like the little children. You've got to approach me like the tax collector in the story did, not like the Pharisee. You can't come to God in your own self-importance, thinking that you've got it all together and receive him. And then Jesus gets even more direct. So he's just told these three stories and then he keeps talking to his apostles. He says something else that would have really shaken them up. In verse 31, he says, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So this is what they're expecting. We're going to Jerusalem. He's going to come in as the king into the kingdom. All of the prophetic words are going to be fulfilled. But then he says, He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Now, that... that was quite shocking so much so that Luke continues saying the disciples did not understand any of this this was completely countercultural. it was completely at odds with everything that they expected and had been taught for a thousand years he says its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about but he was very explicit and very clear and Luke's building this narrative to a point so from the end of that conversation, Jesus and the apostles then begin the journey to Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem. He's going as the king. Now bear in mind he's coming at Passover. Now Passover is the time that, that, that the son of David, the king, the Messiah, was going to apparently be revealed, coming into Jerusalem. So he's coming in, and, and we'll, we'll find out as we read through it in a moment, that, that he is declaring himself to be that person. Let's turn to chapter 19, starting at verse 28. So this is very soon after chapter 18 that we've just read. It says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell them the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. I'm going to stop a few times through this narrative just to explain a couple of things. Because at every point of this particular story, what's happening is he's fulfilling Old Testament prophetic messianic words. So messianic is, is something about the Messiah. There was a lot of words of prophecy all through the Old Testament pointing towards this is what the Messiah will do, this is something the Messiah will do, or from God himself stating this is what will happen, this is how it will happen. 
And the people knew that. They knew, I think there was something like 330 prophecies of the Messiah that Jesus had to fulfill in order to be the one. And so people were looking for that and they knew them all very well. So at this point, Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So even what Jesus is doing, he's setting this up. He declares it beforehand, go and get that donkey, bring it to me. I'm going to ride into town on it because he is actively and deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9 verse 9. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he went along, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now this is yet another picture of, of kingship. You see, in 2 Kings chapter 9, there was a situation where a guy named Jehu was anointed king of Israel. So very brief 60-second history lesson. Uh, when when the, uh, Israel asked for a king, you had King Saul, King David, King Solomon. That was what they called the, 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 uh, um, the kingdom of Israel. So it was the United Kingdom of Israel. There were 12 tribes. After Solomon, when his son came in, the 10 northern tribes rebelled against uh, Rehoboam. And there was a, a separate kingdom that was established that was called the Kingdom of Israel. That was the 10 northern tribes. There was two southern tribes, which were called the Kingdom of Judah. So then there was a period of some hundreds of years of what they call the divided kingdom. Kingdom of Israel in the north, Kingdom of Judah in the south. So according to the Old Testament writers, every king in Israel except one was an evil king, was a king that didn't follow God, that didn't continue the practice of worship of Yahweh, the, old, the God of the Bible, but they instituted the worship of other pagan gods around them, except for one, and that king was Jehu. So Jehu came in after Ahab. You've probably heard of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was seen as the worst king of Israel, and, and he still got three generations after him, or two generations after him, three including himself, um, of, of uh, children on the throne. But then at the end of that, Jehu came in and basically wiped out the family of, of Ahab and wiped out all of the pagan worship in Israel and restored Israel for the first and only time in the northern king's history back to God. And so at the point where Jehu was anointed king, so and the, again, the people knew this history, so they understood Jehu was the only king in Israel who was deemed to be in any way worthy. It says in 2 Kings 9, when Jehu was anointed king over Israel, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and, and shouted, Jehu is king. So when Jehu was anointed king and, and declared to be king of Israel, they placed their cloaks under him. And this is the same thing that's happening with Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey like the Messiah would, with everybody laying their cloaks before him and the palm leaves, and they were celebrating and they were rejoicing. This was a picture of great victory. This was a picture of, of great celebration. And everybody involved would have known exactly what this meant. Here is the king coming into his kingdom. When they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which was a fulfillment of Psalm 118. Now, we've got to just digress for a moment. There's a section of Psalms from 113 to 118 that's called the Hallel. And the Hallel is, is a messianic part of the Psalms. And, and it's read by Jews every Passover. Psalm 113 and 118 is quoted. This is the declaration of Messiah. This, this Hallel is, is essentially them pleading for it to be so. And it's spoken at Passover. And, and part of that, 118 verse 26, 
is this. It says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every Jew knew this by heart, and every Jew said this at Passover. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, into the Passover. Passover was only a matter of days away, and, and they were declaring part of the Hallel over Jesus. So this is a very, very clear picture of a people who are welcoming their king, their Messiah, into Jerusalem. And they say, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. This mirrors what the angels said in Luke's narrative in Luke chapter 2. When Jesus was born, the angels came in the heavens. Glory to God in the highest and peace to all men. You know, these the same... Um, these same references, these same scriptures, this same declaration was being made by the people over Jesus coming into Jerusalem at this moment. It's not really a surprise that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They knew what was going on. They knew that this crowd was declaring this man to be the Messiah, the, the, the promised king coming into his kingdom and they expected that they were all going to ride on this wave of glory and, and, and God was going to come and deal with Rome and God was going to come and deal with the oppressors and God was going to come and deal with all of that stuff because he is our king and we finally get the victory. And then Jesus does something crazy. If you're anybody who's in that crowd, Jesus does something that you could not possibly begin to understand. He weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've, I've longed to gather you. Gather you together like a, you know, like a hen gathers her chicks. But you'll be destroyed. He says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You can't possibly begin to imagine how we've got such a dichotomy, such a divergence. The picture is the people who are actually recognising this is the Messiah, this is the King, he's coming to Jerusalem, we're all with him, we're worshipping him, we're praising him. It's like the greatest victory that we could ever possibly hope for in the church. And Jesus is weeping because they didn't recognise God's coming. What's going on? How is this so? I think the reason is found in a couple of stories that take place between the end of chapter 18 and that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you were paying attention before, I went from the end of 18 straight through to 19 verse 28. There's 28 verses at the beginning of chapter 19 that, that, that actually tell an incredible story. The last few verses of chapter 18 tell the first story and that first passage within chapter 19 tell the second story. And because they're separated, the two chapters in our modern-day Bibles, we see them as separate, but they're actually two stories that happen in the same town at the same time, one, one after the other. The first one happens as Jesus and the apostles are coming into Jericho. So Jericho was on the way from where Jesus came to, uh, uh, between there and Jerusalem. And the second story happened on the way out of Jericho. And, and these two stories really outline so clearly who Jesus is, what his kingdom is, and why the people missed it. And so I just want to spend a few minutes this morning as we finish up on these two stories. They'll both probably be fairly familiar stories to you, but maybe you've never thought of them together. The first one is found in Luke 18, 35 to 43. 
And this is, um, Luke doesn't tell us this guy's name, Mark does. This, guy, this man's name is Bartimaeus. He was a blind man. And so what happens is Jesus is coming into Jericho. And, and you need to understand the, the picture here. So the crowds have come out of Jericho. There's maybe a kilometre or two before Jericho. The crowds have come to meet him and to usher him into Jericho in, in, in fanfare with rejoicing. You see, in the Middle East, if somebody who is honourable, somebody who is a person of great position and great authority and great awe and respect comes into a town, the townsfolk will come out and they'll meet them beforehand and they'll bring them in. And, and the more important, the, the more uh, honourable somebody is, the more people will come out and the further they'll come. In, in his book, uh, Kenneth Bailey talks about he lived in, in an Egyptian town in the 1960s and one time the Egyptian president came to that town and thousands of people came 10 kilometres out of the town to meet the motorcade and to walk all the way back into town with the motorcade rejoicing with, with this, this man of great honour that came to their town. This is the picture that's happening here. Jesus is coming in, he's on the way to Jerusalem uh, and, and as we, we saw in the following chapter, everyone in Jerusalem knew by now this, this, this could be the one. This, is this the Messiah? Imagine after, after hundreds and hundreds of years, finally there's this man who maybe this is the one we've been waiting for all of our life. And, and so they, they saw this man of a, great, a man of great honour and they all came out to bring him into the city and there's a blind man sitting there saying, well, what's all the noise? What's going on? And the people said, be quiet, shush. There are important things going on here. The blind man, as I said earlier, Mark tells us his name was Bartimaeus. Now, Bartimaeus comes from a Greek word which can be translated son of filth. So the crowd's there, oh, Jesus, Jesus, let's come and bring Jesus in. Shut up, son of filth. Get away. We've got important stuff going on. Bartimaeus grew up in a society where blindness was seen as a curse. And, and so the way, to, the, the, the way you responded if you saw someone blind or someone who you thought was under a curse was just to spit. He spit. It's where one of Jesus' miracles where he spat in the mud and actually used that spit to restore sight was actually quite profound. He took what was an object of curse and turned it into a blessing. But that's, that's another issue. In this case, though, he's a man who was oppressed in every sense of the word. He'd spent his whole life blind, a beggar. You know, if somebody wanted to make themselves out to be really good, they'd go to a beggar and give alms and the beggar, their role in the whole thing was to, to then declare the goodness of that person, that benefactor and how amazing they are. Like it, was, it was a whole pageant that went on and, and begging was, was something that, that, that was an industry really and, and if you were blind, your role was to make the giver feel better. A little bit like those ridiculous Instagram influencer things that you see sometimes where someone will go up and give something to somebody while it's all being recorded and you know what I mean, I've seen plenty of them. Where, where really the goal is for that Instagram influencer to make their 100,000 followers to think they're awesome. Nothing to do with actual compassion, nothing to do with actual caring about the person if you've just made an object of ridicule. This is the sort of scenario we've got going on with Bartimaeus. He, he was oppressed. But what the people never realised in the town was they were in that story, the oppressors. They were the ones who had oppressed Bartimaeus, who probably saw him, looked with him with disdain. Um, you know, who, who, when, how dare you go and talk to Jesus? We're looking at Jesus here. You just shut up. You just get over there and you know, get in your hole. You know, that sort of thing. Like that's, that, that's the type of response that they have to Bartimaeus. And Jesus stops, though, because Bartimaeus calls something out that's quite profound in 18 verse 38. When he, first of all, he says, what's going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming past. And he calls out Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. 
This is the first time Luke uses the term son of David since the angel declared it over Mary. It's the only other time it's used. So in this story, the one, the, the one who was reviled, the one who was blind, was the only one who saw. The people who were honouring this great man that was coming in still saw him as Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus, son of David. So did they really get it? Or were they caught up in the pageant of what was going on? Were they caught up in the, in the victory? This man's coming into victory. I, I, I want to tie myself to him. You know, I want to be part of this great victory that, 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 that God promised all the way through the Old Testament. But he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the same approach that the tax collector had in the, in the parable, the previous chapter. And Jesus stopped. He stopped the entire procession. And he asked the crowd to bring Bartimaeus to him. So he asked the ones that were the oppressors in this story to grab the oppressed and to bring him to Jesus. So they served the one that they reviled. And he came to Jesus and Jesus healed him. And they all rejoiced. But as we see in the next story, they still didn't get it. You see, not only would a town come out and welcome a, 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 an honourable person or a famous person, you know, and, and come in with big fanfare. What, what is not stated in the story, but it's almost, uh, almost 100% guaranteed that this would have been happening, was that they also would have been setting up a feast for him because this person... In, in the Middle East, hospitality is everything. Uh, and, and we see this time and time again in, in many parts of the world, actually. We don't get this as Westerners. Hospitality is such an incredibly important thing to many nations around the world, many cultures. And so they would have wanted Jesus to come and, and they would have put on hospitality. The, Jericho was going to honour this man that was coming through, possibly as the king, as the Messiah, going on to Jerusalem to restore Israel. But Jesus continued right through. He didn't stop at their feast. He didn't want to have a feast with them. He kept going through. And, and we know this and because he, he continued walking until he got to the sycamore trees, which were on the other side of Jericho. And, and based on the, uh, the Levitical laws, sycamore trees had to be a certain distance from town. So he'd gone right through town. He had quite possibly graciously, who knows, but had re refused their offer of hospitality. Said, no, no, I've got to keep going. I'm, I'm, I'm on a quest. And he gets to a sycamore tree and he stops. Because there's someone hiding in that sycamore tree and his name's Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector, he's the chief of the tax collectors. So if we think in, in the, in the uh, Middle Eastern mind at the time, a tax collector was like a scumbag, we would seem like a scumbag, the, the worst of the worst, uh, whoever you would hate the most, revile the most, that was the tax collector. Well, he was the chief of them. So he was the scumbag of all scumbags, so to speak, in the people's mind. He, he was so reviled that he couldn't even join the crowd. Like generally, a short man who had any sort of honour or respect, if he came into a crowd, they would make way and let him to the front so he could see Jesus. He, he couldn't even trust himself in a crowd because somebody probably would have knifed him because he was so hated and so reviled. So he had to do two things that, that were shocking for a Middle Eastern man of any age in particular. And, and that was the first one was to run, to get ahead of the crowd, and the second one was to climb a tree. Any Middle Eastern man with, a, with an ounce of dignity and respect would not run and would not climb a tree so he did both he humiliated himself to get to a place where he could see jesus and a sycamore tree has large leaves and it's one of the few trees in that in that region that you could conceivably actually hide yourself and if you're up in a tree you could be you know put the leaves around you and nobody could actually see that you were there 
And I believe that Zacchaeus was probably trying to hide. He wasn't wanting to show off or anything. He just wanted to see Jesus. So here's this man who is probably one of the wealthiest men in Jericho and certainly the most reviled man in Jericho who, who ran, who climbed a tree, who just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. And again, Jesus stops. And he does something that is so shocking that he couldn't possibly offend Jericho anymore if he tried. And he stopped. He said, I'm going to your place for dinner tonight. Now, the whole town had just put on a feast for Jesus that he rejected. He didn't stop. He had stuff to do. He, he had important things, so he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to keep going. And as soon as he saw the most hated man in town, he said, I've got to eat with you tonight. Imagine, that, that, that's, that's horrific to any person in Jericho. That's horrific. You, you mean you won't eat at my place, but you'll eat at his place? Imagine the person that you hate or, or dislike or whatever term, because we don't say hate as Christians, you know. Um, but imagine the person that, that, that offends you the most on this earth. If Jesus went to that person and treated them with honour and dignity and respect. But you say, but hang on a minute, Zacchaeus was the oppressor. The people were the oppressed. So he, he was genuinely the oppressor. He, he built his wealth off the backs of the people by charging them usury, charging them unfair taxes, that they were in slavery and servitude because of Zacchaeus's greed. So he was genuinely the oppressor, and they were genuinely the oppressed. And yet Jesus called him down, treated him with dignity. The other part of what's so shocking is the guest of honour doesn't decide, well, you're going to cater for me tonight. You're going to treat me with honour tonight and put on a feast for me. That, that's just, that, that is just so countercultural. You know, it's the host that comes and honours the guest and calls them in, please come to my place. Jesus actually turns every convention on its head in this moment. And so he goes to Zacchaeus' place. And in one of the... Uh, probably one of the most um, understated verses of Scripture that says the people grumbled, people began to mutter. I think they would have been doing a whole lot more than muttering because what Jesus did was so offensive. It, it just offended them so much to their core. And they'd said in verse 7, chapter 19, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. He's gone to that bloke's house. Because in their, in their euphoria, in their, oh, this is the one, this is the one, they would have seen that he was going to come and destroy someone like Zacchaeus. He was going to come and destroy Rome and destroy those systems. And that bloke who's ripped us off for the last generation, well, he's going to get what he deserves. Because that was the kingdom they were looking for. That was the king they were looking for to restore what was right by judging the oppressor to release the oppressed. But what he did was he came to the oppressor and he treated him with dignity and grace and mercy. And have a listen to how Zacchaeus responds in verse 8. So Jesus comes to his house and Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this home because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, even in this declaration, Jesus, hang on a minute, Jesus, you're getting it all wrong. No, 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 just, just stop for a minute. He's, Zacchaeus hasn't done anything to make restitution yet. He just said he's going to. He's, oh, I'm going to do this, Lord. I'm going to do this to make it right. So, so really, he should have to go out and do that and give all of his money away and, and do all the right stuff and make restitution and, and go to the, to the temple and have himself cleansed and then he'll be righteous. But no, in that moment, 
Jesus knew that salvation had come to that house because the heart of the oppressor was released. And he knew in that moment that he was an oppressor. See, the actions follow. The heart is where it's at. And in that moment, by Jesus showing grace to the oppressor, the ultimate result was that the oppressed were set free. Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give it all back. Zacchaeus single-handedly as one man made a decision that upended the entire social structure of that city by no longer ripping people off, by no longer oppressing people, by declaring, I am going to set these people free. I'm going to give back. I'm going to make it all right. And, And so Jesus set the oppressed free by loving the oppressor. See, none of us are offended by a gospel that releases the oppressed. We love that. Social justice. Let's get out there. Let's sort out these issues in the world. And, and, and that's fantastic. That comes from the heart of God. But how often do we want to do that by seeing the oppressor judged? We see it right through society. The ones who were oppressed become the oppressors. The ones who were vilified become the vilifiers. The ones who, who, who feel that they were judged very quickly judge others. Even those of us Seeing a parable like the Pharisee and a tax collector, we can come out of that saying, gee, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee. But in that moment, am I any different? Because what Jesus knew was that in every one of us is not just the oppressed, but the oppressor. Every one of us, whenever, how often have I in my heart reviled somebody else? How often have I judged somebody else? How often have I deemed that they're not worthy of being in my life or they're not worthy of my, of my compassion or they're not worthy of my grace because, because you know what they did to me? And I may be entirely correct in, in, in outlining that. They, they may have really hurt me. They may have really destroyed my life. Zacchaeus had really no redeeming feature about him at all. But in that moment, he knew he just had to come to Jesus, like the tax collector in the parable. And like the tax collector in the parable, that man, Zacchaeus, stood righteous before God. You know the greatest irony? The greatest irony is Zacchaeus' name is also from a Greek word, and it means pure. So we had a society in in Jericho, right, right throughout the Middle East there, where Somebody like Zacchaeus could have the name Pure through that whole, all the years he did that. And, and someone like Bartimaeus could have a name Son of Filth. You see, the entire structure and the heart of every person within that structure was far from God. And sometimes we can be the same. We can, we can want God to come and set us free and do all of this and have all these victories. But really, there's a part of me that wants him to judge someone else. Or there's a part of me that wants him, you know, how can you go and eat at that person's place? How can you bless that person? Do you know what they've done? Because each of us has a little bit of the oppressor in our own hearts. And Jesus came to set us free. You see, he came to bring a kingdom and he came as the king, but that kingdom is in the heart. He didn't come to overthrow a nation. He didn't come even to overthrow a system. He came to transform a heart. And through transformed hearts, all of those systems are overcome. Through Zacchaeus' transformed heart, all Jesus did was honour him. All Jesus did, Jesus didn't preach at him and tell him to repent or any of that sort of stuff. He, he, he restored to Zacchaeus what he didn't have. Zacchaeus had no honour. He had no respect. He had nothing. He was treated like a piece of garbage, just like Bartimaeus, but for different reasons. And Jesus restored dignity to Zacchaeus. And through that one step, Zacchaeus then restored right order to that society. 
And this is the heart of the king. The heart is not just to set the oppressed free, but to set the oppressor free. And that's a much more offensive message. Because deep down, we don't want the oppressor to be free. We don't want the oppressor to be blessed. We don't want that one that hurt us to, to be the recipient of God's mercy, even at the same time as me asking God for mercy. And that's the point. That's why Jesus came into this city and he wept, because the people recognized a king coming to the kingdom, but they had no idea what that looked like. And they thought, they were, oh, we're, we're all going to go. We're going to show Rome. We're going to show all of these people that have treated us badly for our whole lives for hundreds of years. But Jesus was saying, no, you're the oppressor. I want to set you free. And I believe he'd say the same thing to each of us today. Because I think there are parts of our heart where maybe we are oppressed. And I think there are parts of our hearts where maybe we are an oppressor. But whatever place we're in, whatever role we fill in that story, Jesus' approach is the same. He loves us. And he wants to come and give us grace and mercy and dignity and transform our heart because when my heart's transformed, I can transform the world. And that is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the amazing king. Lord, that your kingdom has no end. Lord, your kingdom is transformative and your kingdom changes everything. And Lord, I pray today that you would shine a light in each of our hearts. Lord, whatever part of my heart has been locked down in a prison, whether it's in a prison of things that have been done to me, a prison of my own views or judgments, whether it's a prison I'm in because I've become bitter and resentful, and I've tried to hold somebody else as a prisoner. Lord, you know. You know all things. Well, we, can, we can fool each other. We can even fool ourselves a lot of the time, Lord. But I pray this day that your spirit will just do a gentle work in each of our hearts. Lord, that you would show us where it is you want to bring hope, where it is you want to restore, where it is you want to bring your peace and your grace, where your kingdom can take root. Lord, so that those things that have held me back, whether it's bitterness or resentment or rejection or things that have been done to me or things that I've done and and I can't actually release myself from the prison of my past. Lord, whatever it is in my heart that I've been withholding, Lord, that I've been hiding, I pray that your spirit would come in, Lord, that you would open, open up. Not because you want to expose us, not because you want to... Not, not because you want us to think or to feel as though we've done the wrong thing, Lord, but because you want to set us free. Lord, you want, to, you want to set us free. You want to release all of us from those prisons that we've been in for so much of our lives. And Lord, I pray that we could grab hold of that transforming power of your kingdom, Lord, and that that kingdom will start in my heart. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.